This is the Celebration Rock Podcast presented by 93XFM here in Minneapolis and uprocks.com. I'm your host, Stephen Hyden. Today we're going to be talking about recent albums that are flying under the radar. You know, records that I think are really good, but aren't generating the kind of conversation that they should be. So I called up my friend Jeremy Larson. He's the reviews editor at Pitchfork. And we both came up with a list of like three records each that we both like that uh, we think that you guys would like too. And it was a good conversation. I didn't give him any parameters for what to pick. I just said, just pick three albums that have come out in the last month that you like a lot. And I picked three albums. And it was actually a really good variety. We have a rock opera, I think. We have a a countryish singer-songwriter record. We have like an improvisational jazz record. We have like a really weird electronic record. And we have a couple more after that. So whatever kind of taste you have or whatever kind of record you're looking for, I'm confident that you will find something that you probably haven't heard before in this episode that you can jam on after we're done yapping at you. So if you don't find anything, then I don't know what to tell you. I guess you are just going to be stuck listening to the same music until we do another episode like this. But before we get to that, I want to tell you about our sponsor for this week, and it is our old friends at Indeed.com. Now, when it comes to hiring, you don't have time to waste. You need help getting to your shortlist of qualified candidates fast. That's why you need Indeed.com. Post a job in minutes, set up screener questions, then zero in on qualified candidates using an intuitive online dashboard. Now, Derek, I saw you using this earlier, looking for a new... What was this, podcast host? <laughs> We're looking for all kinds of hosts, for all kinds of podcasts. There's no need to... Uh, I'm, just, I'm so a little busted. nervous about this, man. <laughs> but I know you're going to find someone good with Indeed.com. Now, when you need to hire fast, accelerate your results with sponsored jobs. New users can try for free at Indeed.com slash podcast. Again, that's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms, conditions, and quality standards apply. Okay, so me and Jeremy Larson from Pitchfork... The reviews editor over there, we talked about some of our favorite sort of under-the-radar records from the last month or so, albums that we're excited to talk about. And uh, it was a great conversation, a really good variety of music. So without further ado, here's me and Jeremy Larson on the Celebration Rock podcast. I am tempted um, to just turn this podcast completely over to talking about the second half of the Packers-Bears game, uh, a.k.a. one of the greatest comebacks of all time. Cause, what a you know, comeback. Not since Super Bowl, not since the other... Two Super Bowls ago. <laughs> let's uh, let's not talk about the Super Bowl. Oh yeah, well yeah, well. No, I'm, but I'm talking about yeah. Derek is a is a Falcons fan, so oh sorry, this is, <laughs> this is traumatic for him. But you know, I I'm just saying that whenever you're on, because of our of our shared Wisconsin lineage, I just want to talk Wisconsin stuff. I want to open a bag of Culvers and just eat cheese curds and talk about Aaron Rodgers coming out on one leg. And oh my God, Bears. what a hero! I know. Earn that money. It was so, yeah, I, I, I love, have you ever, you've been to Lambeau, right? Oh, many times, yes. Right. So it's, so it's quiet when they're, when they're on offense, like, it's pretty quiet. 
Right. It's it's very, it's like, oh, I feel like I'm not at a, a rowdy stadium. And you could definitely tell, I think one of the announcers said something to that effect that when Rodgers went down, it was just, you could hear a pin drop. It was just people, be, people and all of the, the camera pans to everybody's faces, they just all look like they're at a funeral. <laughs> just, just sullen and dark, staring, and like the first, uh, you know, game of the season, seeing Rodgers clutching his knee. It was, I mean, it was dark. It was really dark. And I, I was like, you know, I have like a, a, a text chain with some, with some folks. And I, I said, I was like, I'm not watching the game anymore. I'm done. Like, I can't, right. I can't go through this. What's crazy then, about that Lambeau thing too, is that, you know, that was a night game. So there were people in that stadium that had probably, you know, been drinking since, you know, 10, 10 or 11 o'clock in the morning, you know, that was like yeah. the first Bloody Mary. And then all yeah. of a sudden Rogers goes down and it's like instant sobriety. Right. Yeah. thousand Wisconsin residents. Uh, it's like the only thing that, you know, it's like the, the greatest pot of coffee and cold shower in the world, you know, mm-hmm. simultaneous for, for people. Uh, yeah, I had the same thing. I almost turned it off. It's funny because like in my text changed uh, t- during football games, you know, 25% of the texts are always complaining about Thomas Middleditch. You know, <laughs> those commercials, the bubble trance commercial. Oh, yes, yes. Uh, that was like a running joke in my text chains, just complaining about that. And then interspersed with people just openly weeping already for the season being over when Rodgers went down. And then, of course, the great, you know, change of fortune after that. We've got an uphill battle this this season for sure. Well, we do, know? and after the you know, and this this podcast is going to post after the Vikings game, so it's possible that like Rogers' leg was totally knocked off in that game, you know, against the Vikings because they're a great defense. I, I I have no idea if he's even going to be playing in that game. Uh, he's going to play. Well, you know, it, it's just funny to speculate on this now because by the time <laughs> anyone hears this, it, you know, the die will already be cast. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. We're, we're like in a time capsule here of uh, of doubt. Okay, it's funny because I joked about this becoming a Packers podcast, and it sort of did for a couple minutes. So we should probably steer it back towards music. Because, we can steer it back because as much as we are both in the salt mines of music criticism, and as much as people need to feel sorry for us because it's a very hard life, I would like to, I would like for them too. Yeah. Yes, we must do our duty and 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 share the good news with people. Do you know talk about records that we that we both like, and you know, of course, we both know that there are always certain records that get a lot of attention that are the sort of headlining records that everyone's talking about. But then there's a whole other host of albums that are good and they get reviewed well, but they don't necessarily command a whole lot of conversation. So I thought it'd be fun to have you on as the reviews editor at Pitchfork. You have a lot of things come across your desk. Mm. I want to talk to you, pick your brain about things that you kind of like that you want to maybe signal boost a little bit. I have records that I want to signal boost a little bit. Um, why don't you go first? What What is an album that you have heard maybe in the past month that you really like that you want more people to know about? Right. So I'm going to, I'm going to lead with probably my favorite album, one of my favorite albums of the year. Um, uh, and it is a Midwestern band, a Midwestern institution, mm. um, putting out their 12th album. Uh, and it is rare that I could say that a, a band's 12th album is probably one of my favorite things that they've ever done. But such is the case with Low and their new album, Double Negative. Um, and that's actually, this, this will be out, it's, it's out tomorrow um, as we're recording this. So it, it, it'll be out uh, by the time this this goes live um, so people can get a chance to hear it. Um, but yeah, Low, you know, for those who, for those who don't know, not familiar with Low, they're they're kind of a they are t- basically 
assigned with inventing the genre of slowcore, uh, which is sort of when in the early 90s, um, alt-rock was just, you know, being very alt-rock and grungy and low, um, a, uh, I believe a trio, right? I think we were a trio. Yeah. And, and uh, they were just like, let's play everything very slow and very quiet. Um, and, uh, and so they were, they were doing that and they did that for their first <clears throat> six albums or so. And then, you know, they, uh, in the middle of their career, they started taking left turns, you know. They had, uh, they had Jeff Tweedy produce an album. Uh, they had songs that went a little faster and got a little louder. And they were sort of defined, um, they were sort of low songs that were different for low, you know. Um, but here with this album, Double Negative, it really kind of sounds like nothing I've ever heard before. And I'm always kind of drawn to that, too, um, because I'm, I'm even just like an addict where I need an insane amount of drugs to feel anything with music anymore. <laughs> um, and so when I get uh, something like this album, Double Negative, that sounds like it's falling apart as you turn it on, that it sounds like a, like a tape that's been left out in the sun for too long, uh, and it still carries this sort of beauty and um, sort of chilling uh, haunting effect to it. Uh, it. It really moves me. Um, it was produced by um, the same guy that um, produced and engineered um, their last album, and also sort of um, as, a, as an important touch point, uh, Boney Vare's um, 2016 album, 22 A Million. Was it 2016? Maybe it's 2015. Um, from a couple years ago, their, yeah. his, um, their album. Uh, to uh, 22 a million. So it has that kind of like digital goop and glop all over it. Um, but it's not, it, they're not flourishes. Like that is the language. Like the language is kind of noisy, leaking, pouring out everywhere uh, sound. And it really is arresting and, um, and kind of all enveloping when you really get into it. Um, and it, it, they sort of, um, they they wrote it sort of as you know a lot of bands are doing now sort of as a response to um, the Trump era and sort of what what it kind of felt like and but as opposed to being sort of more didactic uh, it's it's very much this feeling the sunken feeling of what it is to kind of live right now and how uh, um, this lens like viewing uh, life through this distorted uh, weird alien lens uh, is kind of like what this music sounds like to me yeah I think that's a really good way to put it I like that description you had about it sounding like a tape that's been left out in the sun too long because I, mm -hmm. I, I had a similar feeling listening to it that when you when you listen to the record, you know sounds kind of come in and out of focus. It, the vocals seem a little distorted. It, it just seems like there's something slightly disorienting about every sound on the record. And it's interesting with Low because I think people have a very fixed idea of what this band sounds like. It's it's a very quiet sounding band. As you said, they're they're associated with the slow core movement of the '90s, which is the you know very slow sounding music of course mm -hmm. very pretty sounding murmured mm -hmm. vocals kind of twinkling guitars in the distance type type thing and they don't necessarily have like a wide sonic 
palette, this band. Like, or you don't associate that with them anyway. You're, you're never going to listen to a low record and hear, you know, like techno sounding uh, synths or, you know, big beats on it or some radical right. you know, trap type reinvention. They're working in a fairly narrow vein, but the fact that they can make a record like this, this deep into their career, that, as you say, I think doesn't sound like anything they've ever done before. Um, mm-hmm. In a way, it kind of reminded me of the Yola Tango record that came out earlier this year. There's a ride going on. Oh, yeah. Where that's another band that is this sort of bellwether indie rock band that's been around for a long time. They put out a lot of records. They're very well respected. They've never been like a huge commercial success, but if you're into indie rock, you at least respect Low mm-hmm. and Yola Tango. Mm-hmm. And I felt like they also found a way to make this, like on their record, the Yola Tango record, they kind of made sort of a more ambient sounding album. Very kind of, you know, indicative of what they've done before, but again, it, it doesn't sound anything quite like what they're doing. And I think with any band like this, it's always hard to sort of appreciate the latest album that comes out because there's already so much in the catalog. And I think it's almost more difficult. I think it is more difficult to be in a band in that situation and to actually still surprise people and to, and to entice them and to interest them. Uh, so for Lowe to be able to do that at this point in their career, you know, as you say, I think that's really worth saluting. And I also have to say, being here in Minneapolis, Duluth, of course, is from uh, Lowe is, is of course from Duluth, so they are mm-hmm. in Minnesota. So I have to give that shout out to them. Um, but yeah, I like this record a lot too. I have a feeling that this is going to be a pretty it seems like this bu- this record's getting a lot more buzz than maybe other albums that they've put out recently. Definitely, yeah. And I think I think it's due in part to the fact that because it's such a... It doesn't sound like Low. I mean, I could send this to people who've never even heard of Low, and they're like, oh, wow, what is this? Like, right. this, is an, this sounds like an entirely different band than, <clears throat> you know... There are, there are no there are barely any signifiers that this band started in the early 90s playing you know slowcore songs playing you know long lingorious songs and it's you know it's funny you talk about Diola Tango I would say like and then on the other end of the spectrum there is you know the new spiritualized record which is sounds exactly like a spiritualized record you know it's Jason Pierce doing his um, specific kind of um, gospel druggy songwriting that uh, it, that sounds kind of like a like a stadium collapsing in on itself and uh, and it's it sounds like a spiritualized record and it's like yeah this is great this is what I expect and love from Jason Pierce when he makes a spiritualized record uh, you know is it is it taking a lot of risks I don't think so but it still sounds very good and he's still very good at making that kind of music but here I feel like low they, they take so many I mean, they take so many risks. They're just—it's so wonderful to see a band um, exist in this abyss of doing something they've never done before. And I think they kind of rediscovered something about themselves in, in that little place. And I'm curious uh, to see them live, like how this album will translate, because I can't really imagine them playing it the way it sounds on the record. I mean, I'm very curious. Maybe they can. I, I But th- having seen Lil before and maybe not feeling strongly compelled to see them again, I actually am compelled to check them out if you know I, on this next tour just to see how they replicate this record. Yeah, maybe they'll do a, a Morning Becomes Acoustic session and it'll just sound <laughs> like a bunch of old Lil songs. Right, right. Well, you talked about the Lil record being one of your favorite albums of the year. The, the album I'm going to talk about first, I think has become one of my favorites of the year. It's, it's really grown on me after initially putting me off a little bit. 
the album is called Go to School, and it's by a band called The Lemon Twigs. And this band, it, it's basically a duo, a brother duo, uh, the, the the Daddario brothers, Brian and Michael. And they're both very young guys. I think they're like 21 and 19 or, or somewhere around there. And they're both from Long Island, New York. They went to Hicksville High School, which is where Billy Joel went to school. And that's actually a handy reference point for these brothers because they are very much cut from the cloth of 70s rock. Uh, Mm -hmm. If you heard about their first record, it came out in 2016. It was called Do Hollywood. And there were just loads of references to classic rock on that record, whether it was Todd Rundgren, Queen, Big Star, uh, all the way down the line. And I remember when that record came out, um, it was one of those things like where I... We're, I don't know if you've ever had this, but sometimes a band or an artist will come along that is almost too tailored to your interests, to the point where you are almost skeptical of your own reactions to them. Like uh-huh. That's how it was with me and the Lemon Twigs, because they were making music that was very much up my alley, and there was something about it that I wasn't quite sure if it was... Uh, if it was just purely derivative and like kind of pandering to people like me or if they were actually putting their own spin on it. And so I was resistant to uh, the Do Hollywood record. Now they've put out this this next record called called the uh, Go to School, and this is a self-described musical. You know, it, it, they're not even using the term rock opera; they're calling it a musical. They, they've cited Assassins by uh, Stephen Sondheim as being mm-hmm. a big inspiration for this record. And the storyline, as it goes, it, it's about a monkey who goes to school and then encounters problems once he goes to school, as you would expect a monkey to encounter if if a monkey were to go to school. Uh, so. That's the story of this record, and it's a very theatrical record, and it retains a lot of the classic rock references that existed on Do Hollywood, but on this record, I would argue they're taking those influences, and again, you can hear Queen on this record, especially Ned at the Opera. You can hear early Todd Rundgren. Uh, There's a song on here called, uh, I think it's called Queen of My School, that sounds... uh, exactly like Big Star. A great sort of straight-on replication of like the Radio City era Big Star. Well, Jody Stevens is on the record, too. Jody Stevens is on the record, as is Todd Rundgren. Mm-hmm. They're both on the record. So they're taking all of these influences and they're integrating it into this totally eccentric record, um, very ambitious record. And I have to say that it has, it, it won me over after, you know, several spins and it's become one of those records that I've really kind of returned to a lot over the past uh, couple weeks. And I think this record, I, really I, 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 I listened to it a couple times, and, and I, I, I knew this was going to be one of those records where it's like, you know what, I'm going to come back to this and realize that I really enjoy it. And I just haven't done that. I haven't gone that yet, but I know that's the next step in my journey with this record. Because that's always happened to me with... I, I feel you 100%, and it happens to me with bands like Whitney and Foxygen, where there are, on the surface, they feel like very much revivalists and um, kind of trafficking in a, in a kind of nostalgia for uh, for that classic rock past that I was, you know, born into. Um, and, and I'm always a little wary of it, and I think like sometimes when it's executed really well, uh, it's, it feels very honest. Um, when it's executed poorly, it feels very put upon and, and it kind of rubs me the wrong way. Um, but, but I, and I was, and this is, you know, I also like used to be a theater major, so I kind of have a, um, an ambient love of anything that resembles a musical, um, 
which is another in- insanely insane risk that you would take to create an album where like Todd Rundgren is, you know, the monkey's father. <laughs> like, that, <laughs> right. That's insane. And, and I feel like anybody under the age of 25 is like, what, who cares? Like, what are you talking about? Um, so this is definitely the lemon twigs records definitely, um, is like appeals, appeals to me and checks off a lot of boxes that are unique to me. Um, um, and, and I, yeah, I found it, I found it like very fascinating. I mean, they do like, these guys do like costume changes on stage, you right. know, like, like they, they, they find their way into, into a lot of like the theater of, of rock and roll, which I always find to be, I, I always miss every once in a while. I'm always like, yeah, there could always be more costume changes, I think. Yeah. I mean, you know, to me, like where that revivalism that you talk about uh, becomes a problem is when you're just sort of slavishly recreating what something sounded like in 1973 where you're Mm -hmm. wearing the costume and like you're emulating the behavior that you saw in Almost Famous you know like you're bringing Jack Daniels bottles on stage and you're wearing scarves like Steven Tyler and all that kind of stuff Yeah, I like it when you can take that stuff and you can take it in sort of a weird direction or more sort of idiosyncratic direction in the same way that like if you are you know a folk artist if you are just going to sound like a straightforward replication of Woody Guthrie Mm -hmm. I'm kind of bored but if you can take the bones of folk music and modernize it you know either by using modern technology or by writing about something a little bit more contemporary or or just making it sound a little weirder or different you know then i'm on board and you know Mm -hmm. rock and roll is now a form of folk music i mean i think now artists who play this kind of music they're they're drawing on this material in the same way that like bands in the 60s drew on robert johnson and you know the and, and like the bedrock artists of you know several days several decades earlier and I feel like with this band, on their first record, I feel like it was a little maybe too much on the nose. This album, though, I just feel like I'm seeing more of their specific personality on the record. And and this is an album that I don't think I would really liken to anything that existed 20, 30 years ago. It seems uniquely them while also sort of nodding to influences from the past. So Mm -hmm. that's why I really like that record. What is next on your list? What else do you want to recommend? I would recommend um, probably maybe another um, challenging record. Um, I'm kind of going to go. I'm going to kind of go for all of my uh, all of my uh, um, vegetables. Like eat your vegetables, listen to challenging <laughs> music, um, try to try to change all of the uh, serotonin and dopamine in your brain, so you start to recognize and love more experimental music. Um, it's always it's always a good exercise. I, I think one of another one of my favorite records um, <clears throat> that recently that came out just last week um, is by this artist named Yves Tamour and um, their album Safe in the Hands of Love. Um, and this came out kind of a, as a surprise. We, we we here at Pitchfork had been listening to the album for quite a while, um, but but they were they were very uh, um, tight-lipped about when it was going to come out and and you know and and have the whole process of it. So I think for some people it was a surprise release, um, but. What I find about this album, and it's very similar to the Low album, is that it it kind of it, it takes a lot of reference points um, uh, from all over the the map. Really, I mean, sometimes it sounds like um, like '90s alt rock. Sometimes it sounds like Lil Peep. Sometimes it sounds like. Uh, you know, like Alice in Chains, like I, there's, there's all kinds of, 
strange um, sounds here on this record. And it, it, maybe it's like a noise record. Maybe it's an R&B record. Um, it reminds me of artists like... Um, uh, James Ferraro and Dean Blunt, who will kind of take these um, R&B and pop loops and kind of stretch them out and distort them in, in ways. But more so than that, I, I think what Eve Tumore does on this record is kind of defy expectations, not only for him, not only for uh, Tumore as an artist, but as what you expect when you come and listen to an album. And because it is so all over the map, wherever you go, you were kind of at its mercy, really. And you're kind of taken along on this ride that is very much about being uncomfortable in your skin and thinking about, um, you know, what it what it is like to kind of go through like the trauma of of being yourself and it and it's kind of a is an album that is uh another thing that it makes me thinking about is um and and what I talked about with uh um a lot of people here is that it's it's an album about rebuking labels and and to and not only is the music does the music do that but so does like Tomorrow kind of sing about that and how applying a label to something uh is almost kind of like a violent and uh, and it feels that 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 somebody is doing something to you. So it is the idea of throwing off and and making sure that that uh, you are living a life sort of un un unlabeled life uh, and a life of kind of a freedom. And to me, like that, the music kind of reflects that. And so it is kind of a heady experience. It definitely is a very dark album. It it feels cavernous. I always like describe it as like you are inside of the maw of this album, but there is some incredible songs. Like there is a, um, my favorite song on it is called Lifetime. And if you really want to listen to a song where just like they give the drummer some, uh, that is, that is, that is the song to go to. Um, it's just this incredible uh, drum track on that song. Um, and there's uh, a bunch of guests to uh, guests there. There's a there's a great track called "Linking an Orchard." Features um, this guy James K. And um, but it is very like if you like uh, Pharmacon, um, another noise artist. This is sort of in that vein, but a little more tuneful um, and a little more landing, more sort of in the heart more than in the entire body. Um, this is, I really feel like I'm, like I'm dancing about architecture talking about this <laughs> album. But, well, yeah, I mean, this is, this is a tricky record to talk about because I think this is definitely a record about sensation and, and about how sounds have a way of making you feel certain ways if they are just sort of distorted either to the left or the right, you know, like, mm-hmm. like that's what, exactly. Yeah. That's a, that's a really good way of, of putting it. it. It really kind of exists. It does exist everywhere and nowhere. Right. And that kind of sort of like shadowy, um, non-binary, uh, a way. And I, and I think as, as we think about, um, you know, in, as we think about, uh, what I think about a lot are like politics and identity politics and, and, and how, and how gender has informed music throughout the, the its history. We think about like how how do we break out of those roles, and how do we break out of being so defined not only by not only by genre but by gender. And and 
the the collapsing, and not only the collapsing of genre. I think genre genre is very important, and I don't I don't believe I am not like a radical free genre person where like everything is just going to be one glom of feeling and cafe music and afternoon music. But but I I, I do believe that it's important to define genres because I feel like genres are tied to culture and uh, and and uh, very specific locations, etc. But I do think that it can be a hindrance and it can be um, and there are a lot of artists that are trying to work outside of that because of all of the all of the strictures and um, and sort of bad associations with certain kinds of genre and I think that's a lot of what this Eve to more record seeks to address and and has and forces you to reckon with it really and that's another thing it forces you to reckon with it it is something that you need to wrestle with it is not something that you just sort of put on and listen to it is it is a confrontational record um, and it is art ish uh, sometimes it feels like there, there, there's one moment you know where I, I kind of jokingly refer to it as like somebody's MFA in art installation, sometimes it can sound like that. Um, there's just like a very specific genre where where someone makes experimental electronic music, and it and it is very confounding, perhaps for confounding's sake. There's maybe one and a half moments like that on the record, but other than that, it's very very well composed, very well thought out, um, and and really challenging. Um, so if you if you're looking for something kind of send you off on a, on a journey toward a place you've really never been before, would highly recommend East Timor safe in the hands of love. So I'm going to go in the total opposite direction now from that record with my next recommendation, because the record you just described is this very, again, I think very sensation based music. It's music mm-hmm. that isn't necessarily song oriented. I think it's feeling oriented. It's about, again, how different sounds can make you feel and how you can move from ecstasy to dread and, just by pushing a button and maybe making a sound sound different or something. I, I feel like that's what that record's about. I'm going to go in the total opposite direction and talk about an artist named Rustin Kelly, which, by the way, if you say the name Rustin Kelly, um, you're pretty sure probably not talking about an electronic artist or a mm-hmm. pop star. That is like the name of like a country troubadour. Like if you were going to invent a name, that would be it. And that's what right. Rustin <laughs> Kelly is. Rustin. Uh, Rustin Kelly, He's, a, he's he put out a record... Uh, on September 7th called Dying Star. And uh, Rustin Kelly, I think, is probably best known, if he's known at all, as the husband of Casey Musgraves, who is, of course, one of the... I guess she's not a huge star in country music because country radio will not play a whole lot of women these days, but she's Mm -hmm. certainly one of the big crossover artists uh, that have come out of country in the last couple of years. Uh, But as for her husband, Rustin, he's he's a South Carolina native, Spent a lot of his youth moving around, living in different countries. Funny enough, he discovered country music when he was living in Belgium with his family at the age of 17. And that's around the time that he decided that he was going to pull up stakes and move to Nashville and try to make it uh, as, a, as a country star. And he's knocked around you know, for a while. And he's had a lot of personal issues in his life, especially with substance abuse. Uh, he's kicked the habit and relapsed many times. Uh, and he's written about that a lot in his music. That's become sort of a core part of uh, what his music is about. And in 2017, he put out a, uh, an EP called Halloween that was produced by Mike Mogus, which is a name that, that you might know if you are a listener of Bright Eyes. He's a member of that band. And he's produced a lot of their records. Uh, so that kind of tells you 
a little bit about how Russ and Kelly, he exists in the sort of world of country music, but he also has a leg in the, in the indie world. And I would say that Dying Star has that feel to it. It, it. It's not really a country record in the way that, say, Sturgill Simpson or even Jason Isbell is. I would liken Dying Star more to, say, Heartbreaker the classic Ryan hmm. Adams record. Uh, it's, at times, uh, Russ and Kelly even sounds a lot like Ryan Adams on this record. There's one song where he makes a reference to Parker Posey, which I thought was a real sort of Ryan Adams nod, of course, because he was dating Parker Posey sure. in the early 2000s. In, I believe, the liner notes of Rock and Roll, he credits her as the executive producer with like, oh, cute, and yeah, that's like one of the all-time great liner notes. <laughs> he, I was actually just, I was playing Heartbreaker the other day, and and um, I feel like, and I was looking at the liner notes, and I, I think he says, word to my homies. Right. Yeah. And I'm just like, hmm, yeah. Yeah, that's always, back then. that's always this thing with Ryan Adams. You listen to him, and he'll rip your heart out, and then, like, you'll read his Twitter feed, and he sounds like a total, like, stoner, weirdo dude. <laughs> yeah. It's like you don't, it doesn't compute sometimes that... Anyway, with with uh, with this record, Dying Star, you know the way I'm describing it. You know, this again, this is like a a young male troubadour. He's battled personal demons in his life, and he's writing about that in his songs. I'm sure you feel like, oh, I've heard this sort of thing before. This is something that a lot of other people have done. And when you're working in this sort of uh, medium, you know, you're making this kind of record, I think it really does come down to the execution. You know, do you deliver the songs or are you just another person who is trying to sound like Towns Van Zandt? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I think Russ and Kelly really does deliver on this record because, one, there's a really good kind of sly sense of humor in a lot of these songs. For instance, there's a, there's, there's a, there's a song that he's written uh, called, called Face Plant uh, that is about him drinking too much and falling on his face. And and it's one of those, that is a good example of how he is often able to balance pathos with sort of a self-deprecating sense of humor at the same time, almost like a John Prine type sense of humor, which is always a great thing to have. And he also has just a really great melodic sense, you know. This this is not a record that's reinventing the wheel when it comes to this kind of record, but the songs themselves are incredibly sturdy. They have a really good melodic sense, and this is another one of those records, like the Lemon Twigs record, that when I heard it, I liked it, but it didn't necessarily bowl me over, and yet I found myself reaching for it a lot over the weeks as the weeks went on and it's really kind of grown on me to become one of these records that, I, that I've really come to like so uh, I think especially in this genre in this sort of I guess if you, if you want to call it Americana even though that term I, I, I always dislike that term mm-hmm. I just feel like you could call it a countryish rock record, or you could call it a rocking country record. You know, how much banjo is there on it? There's not much banjo on it, and he also does also he has like a vocoder on one of the songs, so it's like sort of a Casey Musgraves like, you know, twist on on that song. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, yeah, I would liken it to like if you like early 2000s Ryan Adams, I would say that this record is probably up your alley. And especially oh, since Ryan Adams doesn't really work in that vein anymore. He's sort of, he seems to be stuck in that sort of 80s Heartland Rock sound mm-hmm. that he's had for the last several records. He hasn't really made a stripped down acoustic sat sack troubadour record in a while. So if you're, if you're hungry for that, 
and you're not getting it from Ryan Adams, I would say check out Dying Star by Russ and Kelly. I think it's a really good example of that kind of record. Oh, great. Yeah. Kind of like, 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 blood, kind of like a bloodshot records kind of. Yeah, like, exactly. Yeah. Like, you know, sitting on your porch, sipping whiskey at dusk type record. That's great. I, I think it really great. works for that. Well, I'm going to, I'm going to take another U-turn, left turn, <laughs> Y-turn. Someone called it a K-turn the other day and I never heard that. Oh, yeah. K-turn. Um, uh, and I'm going to go with this, this record that came out, um, let's see, when did it come out? Uh, it came out probably about a month ago. Yeah. August 13th, um, or like in the middle of August. And it's this Australian trio called the Necks, um, the N-E-C-K-S. Uh, and it's just a bass, um, like an, an upright bass, uh, piano and drums. So it's very much in the style, I believe that's Modesky, Martin, and Woods lineup. It's kind of like the Bad Plus. If you ever heard of them, they do a lot of sort of jazz covers of rock songs, but they're also just like a straight-ahead jazz trio. Uh, And they also remind me, there's another group um, called um, Dawn of Midi, who opened for Radiohead on a couple of dates um, on their last uh, tour and a half ago. Um, So they they take a very common, like a very jazz sound um, that is very familiar if you've ever heard listen to a jazz trio but what they do they just simplify it and and it's way more about repetition and drone and very slow building of songs and what i like about it is that it's sort of rewiring people people's brains um and it's sort of thinking about uh, like, well, you know what these, you know, generally, you could sort of wake up and be like, well, what does a jazz trio sound like? And what does a jazz trio do? It's like, well, they're going to play this um, old song from Merrily We Roll Along, and they're going to solo over it, and then the song's going to end. And, I, and, I, and for, I think they, they're now, this is like their 10th record, they, they take the sound of, of the jazz trio, and they turn it into like a krautrock uh, sound, or they turn it into something that is way more just sort of like a New York noise sound, or they'll do something that is way more just sort of John Zorny, uh, you know, out jazz stuff. But, it, but what they do is they keep it very tight, and it's very rhythmically focused. And I, and I like this because, in a way, it does similarly or timberly what um, uh, Kamasi Washington does. And Kamasi, Kamasi Washington takes jazz, and that's also his, his triple album from this year, is another one of my favorites, because what he does is he takes, he takes the, the sound of jazz and it's just like, let's, let's take the sound and do something different with the, the timbers that you recognize. And he, and he just turns it into more of a rhythmic exercise. And obviously, there's solos, there's great solos, and there's and there's incredible players on Kamasi records. But it's way, it's much more simpler. You're not trying to follow dense chord changes. It's not sort of about a soloist trying to ascend above the the chart and 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 create some sort of spiritual connection with uh, the jazz god. It's more about keeping it in the rhythm. Uh, and, and making something that is a little more hypnotic and a little more groove-based. Uh, and I feel like that always is going to appeal to more people when you have something that is just straight rhythmically. I mean, I think it's just like innate in our human nature, uh, in our evolutionary nature. So um, that brings us back to the next album, Body, which is about a 55-minute one, one song. Um, and it just... 
it just goes. It just builds. It just starts from nothing, starts from one little particle, and it expands and collapses. And you're, you're wondering where it's going to change, when it's going to change. Uh, it it kind of reminds me a lot of, um, you know, the, the minimalist composers like Steve Reich and um, uh, uh, um, what's Lamont Young. Uh, and, uh, and if you take sort of that and put it into a jazz trio and, uh, and make it, uh, kind of groove and, and add some kraut rock, like you get the next. And it is a very uh, rewarding re- record to just listen to front to back. It's great work music. If you're looking for music that you can listen to while you're trying to read or, or do whatever you need to do at work, it's, it's terrific. It's perfect. And you can, and the more listen, the more you listen to it, the more you can sort of find all of the different subtleties that the three of them are doing on this record. Highly recommend the body by the next. See, I like that you brought this record up because on Twitter I have different factions of of people that I follow, and mm-hmm. the next always come up among the jam band people that I follow, all the dead oh, yeah. and fish people that. Uh, they all talk about the next because they do a lot of improvisational stuff mm-hmm. in their music. And it is about, as you say, sort of starting from maybe something kind of simple and just shooting off into the stratosphere and seeing how far you can push it with the playing. And I think that in certain circles, this band is huge and, and really well known and respected, but like they don't really get talked about at all outside of these small sort of niches of people that are either into jazz or, or are into sort of jammy or, or improvisational music. So um, I've listened to a bit of the next. I mean, they have like a pretty big discography. So Yeah, like, very big. I've delved into stuff. I didn't know they had a new record. I, I My feeling is that they probably put out records on a fairly consistent basis. Like th- this might not even be the first record they put out this year. I'm, I'm thinking it's possible. It, 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 or if it is, it they probably put out a record last year or something. I mean, they seem pretty prolific. Yeah, they they put out they put out quite a bit, and if you look at their Discogs page, they've got you know I I, I can't claim to have listened to it all, but I've but I've definitely listened to um, a, a good portion of it. Um, and they do something different, you know, with the, with each record. Uh, I'm not well as versed to sort of talk about the differences right now extemporaneously over the phone, but but definitely they have a they have a long catalog and. And if that kind of interplay between three people is something that you really enjoy, um, I, I would definitely look into that. There was the other one, the guy who put out a record last year, Floating Points. Um, uh, he sort of like is this, I think it was a house, kind of an ex, like a, like definitely an electronic producer, a little more into sort of like that like house funky producer. He basically was like, you want to know what? I'm just going to get a band and go jam in the desert. And they created this sort of um, 40 minute Pink Floydian experimental jam session. Um, that is that reminds me. It's not doesn't totally remind me of the next, but it doesn't. But it has that kind of here's here's a band interacting with each other and playing uh, with a with these with a inside of an environment to see what like an environment can do for that and 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 i think like the next are are definitely very like all right what can we make with these sounds uh and 
and you know there's some overdub stuff like there's some guitar that that happens on the album too um but it is but but it is definitely for people who enjoy hearing people communicate with each other through their instruments you know and that's right. kind of not very it's not a very like pop medium you know like that's not usually what pop music is about um so it definitely falls into more of like a jazz or classical idiom but i do think if you if you like uh long krautrock jams or um uh, if you've ever heard a fella cootie record like you will definitely enjoy this as well so so far in this episode we've talked a lot about you know sensation-based music, improvisational music, music that is about sort of almost creating a spell over the listener. And we've also talked about more sort of singer-songwritery albums. And I feel like Mm -hmm. the last album we're going to talk about in a way kind of brings both of these worlds together. And it's a record called At Weddings. It's by an artist named Tom Berlin. Mm. And that is the name used by a Kentucky-based singer-songwriter named Sarah Beth Tom Berlin. Uh, She grew up with a strict Baptist uh, upbringing from her parents. Uh, she actually went to a Christian college, but then she dropped out because she had a crisis of faith. And somehow she ended up writing songs about these things. And it got the attention of Connor Ober's record label, Saddle Creek. And they signed her and they put out this record at weddings. And kind of like with the Russ and Kelly record, you know, when we talk about a country troubadour record, we feel like we know what that is. When we talk about a singer-songwriter record where it's basically one person playing guitar or piano, we feel like we know what that is. But I feel like At Weddings does subvert those expectations to a degree. And maybe I'm projecting her background onto her songs, but when I hear her music, it does have sort of a hymn-like quality to it. I can imagine someone Mm. being in a cavernous temple and playing these songs. You almost feel like you can hear echoes off the walls when she's playing this music. There's something very hypnotic about the way that she's able to build sounds. It's funny because you mentioned Steve Reich when you were talking about the next, and actually wrote down Steve Reich in my notes when I was talking about Tom Berlin. Huh. It's funny, we get two Steve Reich references uh, in a Celebration Rock pod episode. I think those are the first two uh, that we've ever had. But anyway, you know, just the way that Steve Reich sort of builds these walls of sound through repetition of sounds that you know start from a small place and they kind of build on top of each other i feel like tom berlin has a similar quality in a lot of her songs where on one hand they are very intimate and you feel that this person is communicating something very personal to you when she's playing and yet there is something about just the size of the songs the way that they sound that i think kind of goes beyond that sort of coffee shop stereotype that you might have in your head when someone talks about a record like this it i don't want to use the word epic because epic is overused as a descriptive and it doesn't quite fit this record mm-hmm. uh but um i do think that it it moves beyond a lot of the sort of cliches of a singer songwriter record to create this sort of very swelling invigorating kind of haunting sound that i like quite a bit uh so as much as I love the songs, just how this record sounds and how she's able to build it in that way has really drawn me in and impressed me. So that record is called At Weddings. It's by Tom Berlin. Have you heard that record? I love it. Yeah, it's really wonderful. It, you know, it, it reminds me also, too, of, of a grouper, you know, of Liz Harris and and a lot of her sort of very slow glacial uh songs that seemed to that seemed very very tall and uh even though there's it's a kind of a very um minimalist approach and i, I think the way the way that um uh sarah beth tomberlin um does this is 
is it's not easy to do, you know, uh, and it's not just sort of adding reverb to your guitar. Um, it is, it can be very difficult to, uh, d- define yourself within the singer songwriter, uh, genre, especially when there are so many incredible, uh, songwriters doing pretty daring experimental, um, uh, things with it. And, and I think that each, she she kind of grounds herself in the way that that reminded me of like listening to sort of like early Sharon Van Etten um, and and uh, it's like oh like you you kind of know your way around a song um, and that's sort of like an an, an innate talent uh, kind of those sort of things like hey, you can't really teach that and and to me like that's what's so I think what's 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 great about this record is kind of like the promise of what's next and like the promise of this person as a songwriter and where she's going to go. Um, I think about that a lot with debuts, you know, of like, what, ooh, like, like a really good debut for me now is always, always like sets up something where I'm just like, I can't wait to draw another line from this to somewhere else right. and to just start, and to start painting a larger picture. And to me, like, that's, that's definitely what At Weddings is. It's like, I can't wait to see how the next thing defines this thing, you know? Yeah, some, some debut records are almost too perfect, and you're like, wow, they did everything they, they needed to do. So what, what are they going to go from here? You know? Yeah. Like, whereas other debut records are, like, really great, but you're also like, ooh, like, if you just work on this a little bit more, you're really going to hit it out of the park on your mm-hmm. second exactly. album. Or um, it can be like low and your 12th record is going to be your, your one of your career best. And Jeremy, that is how you tie a podcast together. I right? got it. Because you, I'm a natural. You went back to the, to, to the beginning and you tied uh-huh. it to the end. That was just like <laughs> wrapping the bow on it. I'm an editor, man. I know how to bookend <laughs> something. I know how to bookend stuff. That was beautiful, man. Hey, Jeremy, yeah. you know, it's always a pleasure talking with you. And uh, talking music, even though it's incredibly difficult for both of us because we're very downtrodden, salt mine music writer people. But, you know, I'm glad that we found a way to work through that adversity and oh. do this podcast. You know, I'm glad. I, I'll get off the cross for you any day. <laughs> I really will. I'll come down off the cross. Um, I, I do find, though, that, I mean, it's, it's, I'm, I'm a writer by nature, um, and it's much easier for me to kind of write about music than it is for me to, to talk about music. But although sometimes uh, one of my, my favorite notes to give to writers is like, how would you just, just say this sentence out loud? I, I imagine, right. you were, imagine you had a beer in your hand and you were trying to tell somebody about this record, like, what would you say? And often that is... The, the best sentence so hopefully we found some hopefully found some good stuff in here that people can take away well yeah you know we were both pounding beers during this too so I think that helped as well. I'm wasted I'm so. absolutely wasted <laughs> alright well I think we should both go lie down and mm-hmm. uh, wrap this up so Jeremy mm-hmm. thank you again always a pleasure we'll, we'll have you back on soon yeah thank you so much it's always, a, always great to talk to you alright man take care alright so that was me and Jeremy talking about records and again just to list those again we had the Lemon Twigs, we had Rust and Kelly, and we had Tom Berlin. Those were my three records. And Jeremy had East Timor, Low, and The Necks. So lots of stuff to talk about there, lots of stuff to check out. Hopefully you found something that is exciting for you. Uh, Got to give a shout-out to Derek Madden, the man who makes it happen. Thank you, Derek. Got to give a shout-out to the guy that wrote our theme song, Josh Copperman. Thank you, Josh. And, of course, thank you to all our Celebration Rock listeners. Thank you for talking about us on social media, giving us nice reviews on iTunes, and for telling your friends about us. All these things help grow the podcast. It's why we are now at over 120 episodes or so. It's amazing that we've made it this long, Derek. 
I, I can't believe it. It's keep, really cool. I keep waiting for someone to come in the studio and kick us out. <laughs> that would probably be me, right? That's kind of my job. So. <laughs> That's true. So, guys, thanks again for listening. We will be back with more Celebration Rock next week. On the Westwood One Podcast Network. We're all juggling life, a career, and trying to build a little bit of wealth. The Brown Ambition Podcast with host Mandy and Tiffany the Budget Nista can help. When it comes to navigating your career, it really isn't a linear path. You just have to make the best choices with the information that you have at the time and just trust in the journey. Our job security is ourselves. It is our ability to bounce back. And if there's one thing that I've learned is that I'm always going to rise to the top. Brown Ambition, wherever you listen.